0: We're here with Greg Peterson from Urban Farm, and I wanted to hear from you a little about some of what we were beginning to do as we first connected here about your permaculture background and what your goals, what some of the things are that you're wanting to share with us here on Permaculture Perspectives that you're doing as far as your work out there in Phoenix, and anything that you'd like to get into about your background in permaculture and the work you're doing now and how uh how our audience here could you know could learn some things from you perfect so i just stepped out in the backyard and i
1: got a chicken barking in the background is that uh too much
0: that's perfect (laughs) that's a good soundtrack very appropriate (laughs)
1: so um in 19 i'm i'm 60 years old this year and in 1974 i wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans Mm-hmm. And to this day, I have no idea where that came from, how it happened. I don't know why, you know, why I was concerned about that. Uh, but at the age of 15, I was writing about it. And in 1981, I was 20 years old at that time. And I was on the board of the Arizona Aquaculture Association. And... Mm-hmm. um uh, we went around and visited farms around the state, fish farms around the state, and what, one of the things that struck me was that they were harvesting the fish, cleaning the fish, and throwing, basically throwing away everything that was left over except the meat. They were actually giving it to the wildlife. Yeah, that, you know that's got that's got multiple layers of problems. So I'm sitting there in 1981, looking at that, thinking, what is going on here? Why can't we design something? <clears throat> and I didn't know the word regenerative back then, but why can't we design something that works better than throwing away? And so fast forward, and I actually. Created a plan on paper of what we would now call their regenerative farm. Uh
2: huh. Yeah. And then uh, fast forward to
1: 1991, and um, I had several things happen in 1991. I read a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Yeah. Uh, for your listeners, it's an amazing book. Go read it. Uh, I did a, a course at Landmark Education where I. D- I developed a vision for my life, and that would be that I was the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. Mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. do it alone, so it's, it's what gets me up in the morning. The third thing that happened is I discovered permaculture, and for me, permaculture is the art and science of working with nature, and it was, I looked back over the past decade of my life where I've been actually designing what we would now call a regenerative farm, Yeah, and for me, permaculture, was oh my God! There's something to call the way that I think,
0: right? <laughs> <'Cause> that, <laughs> yeah, I think you know, that's that's the
1: way I've always thought. Yeah, and so that makes most sense.
0: And yeah. then,
1: th- just real quickly, there's one more thing that happened in '91. That was it was uh, half of my life ago. So I was 30, and I'm 60 now. Yeah. And a friend of mine went sailing in the South Pacific and they stopped at an island looking for a grocery store, and the people, and he, uh, he communicated this back to me after he got back, he said, they looked at me like I was a little bit crazy and said, go pick your own. Mm-hmm. And for me, that realization was like, holy shirt, Batman, food, and this is a Quinian, you know, from Ishmael, yeah. you know, Quinn, this is a Quinian concept, that food, food used to be free until we locked it up
0: yes right
1: right yeah and so what what i designed from that and there's lots that's happened over the past 30 years since i discovered permaculture but i have a third of an acre here in this in central phoenix mm-hmm. uh, if you stand up if you stand in my roof and look 50 miles in every direction there's people and houses and businesses and like that so i'm literally in the middle of 4.4 4 million people and what i've done is i've designed a an edible landscape that, that's more desert-oriented. Yep.
0: Um,
1: As it should be. <laughs> yeah, not not completely. So we have this peculiar thing here in Phoenix. It's a water right that comes with the with the land. Yeah. This property used to be a citrus orchard in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. In fact, I still have some citrus trees. That are still alive from the 1920s, growing and producing here on the property. Wow! And we get something called flood irrigation, and flood irrigation twenty times a year. I get six inches of water in my yard.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Now it's you know it's kind of a crazy
1: notion for the desert, and that may be coming to an end because we are in a uh, mega drought at this point. Um, but there are over 30,000 acres of flood-irrigated properties in Phoenix, and I've set up this landscape for other people with with flood irrigation to mimic. And then what we do is periodically we open up the yard for tours and classes so people can actually come and see what's going on here.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Where does the flood-irrigation water come from? Is there a series of canals throughout the landscape? or Yeah, how's that delivered to the he, site.
1: Yeah, so they are canals. Uh-huh. Um, and these are the actual canals from they kinda well, not the actual canals, but they followed the same the same canal path as yeah. the Hohokam did four thousand years ago. Mhm. Um, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, or two thousand years ago whenever they were here, I'm not sure on that timing. Um, but we have a huge watershed that is um, that is uh, above the low desert here where Phoenix is at, and a lot of that water is collected and distributed downhill. So it comes from a series of of canals that uh, bring the water to us. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. From a reservoir system or from a river?
1: Uh, From a reservoir system and then delivered Via a river, I see. Via the Salt and Verde River coming into Phoenix.
0: Yeah. And do you know like
1: I said, it's t- like I said, it's not the it's not ideal for the desert, and I see that changing. And so I'm, you know, I'm looking at how how are we going to make that change happen over the course of the next decade. Yeah. Um, but it is it is what it is for now, and what I'm trying to do is encourage people to uh, change that. Grass lawn that they have into something edible,
0: right? And you were saying that ballpark. Did I hear you write something like thirty thousand acres of land that that receives that type of water availability? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's
1: last I checked with our water uh, utility that manages that. I think they said there was about thirty thousand acres of flood irrigated property.
0: So that's sizable to be showing a different pattern of use that could be replicated throughout that. Minute that much acreage even if in some sense it might make sense at some point for it not to be there it makes a whole lot more point for it to be there if they're doing what you're doing on your property
1: that's my point that was my thought process is like you know if if it's going to be here let's grow something other than just grass and feed people because i am a huge believer that urban agriculture growing food in the city is the solution to our global food Mm problems, whether it be in the ground or, you know, in portable farms or container farms or, um, you know, aquaponics or hydroponics or whatever, we need to be growing food where the people are at.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it makes makes eminent design sense to be maxing out production Right? right in proximity to where the point of use is as much as possible
1: man that's brilliant thank you for saying that, that I never kind of, I never kind of articulated it in my mind that way but you're right it makes eminent design sense to do that
0: yeah it kind of it follows the prin you know the zones where we've got zone one being the place where you've got the most intensive production going on because people spend the most amount of the time well that's what high density urban environments are. They're all like a zone one.
1: All right. Hold on. Right. Here, time Timeout. Wow. So this is the reason I love talking to people that are that are doing this work like you out there. And this is the, one of the reasons I do my podcast is because I get to learn things. I've always overlaid the zone one through five on my small property. What I just heard you do was overlay
0: zones over a city. Yep. Yeah, that's brilliant, dude. Right? It it, did. It it yields a lot of a lot of different insights when you scale up the patterns of permaculture site design to a whole larger landscape, and then start to overlay them onto it.
1: Wow, you just blew my mind.
0: Of course. Yeah. You
1: know, and it's it's this is the thing the thing I love about permaculture. It's about observation and learning, Mm -hmm. and I'm. 30 years of studying permaculture and I think
0: I'm still just getting started. All right, yeah. I totally and concur. That's what I love about it too.
1: Right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for that. You just blew my mind.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's it's great to to hear about your work. It's inspiring. The the property out there that you're working with sounds really unique and I love your focus on having it be, you know, you're a uh, one of the things I wanted to share with you, with thinking about your project before getting to talk with you, is how uh, how much I appreciate people who make the effort to make a living doing this from an entrepreneurial viewpoint and focus uh-huh. and focus a lot on education and teaching, uh, because I think uh-huh. that often in our often people who get inspired or informed or influenced by permaculture often go more the direction of kind of what I characterize as high-end niche market consultation or design-build mm-hmm. services, which are that's great because there's, yeah. there's lots of people with lots of money who are going to hire somebody to do it. And I'd, I'd rather see somebody with permaculture ethics and values uh, creating landscapes and buildings for the wealthy. But there's also, I think, a real need to have more people who are inspired by this way of thinking to yeah. focus on teaching people. You know, yeah, so I really I appreciate that about what I was reading from some of the interv- some of the article in that uh, the the Phoenix Voyager I think it was had oh, right. had a nice interview with you in there and um, yeah, so I really appreciate that about your work that you're focusing on education and the uh, accessibility of these ideas to empower people to be able to. Oh, yeah. To take gardening into their own lives and see it as something that is, um, you know, that's that's a very meaningful and, and powerful tool for change.
1: Yeah, when you know the high-end design, you know, there's a place for that, but you know, maybe one or two percent of the people can afford that.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So how do we, you know, how the, really the question that I've been pondering for. A decade um, is how do we create and frame out the conversation online that teaches people these concepts and uh, interestingly enough in 2012 Toby Hemingway McDormand Bell Star and I and a couple other people got together in Prescott Arizona to look to see how we could how can we take these concepts that we're teaching in person, and put them online. And, um, you know, that's when Urban Farm U was uh, born. We put our first online course in 2013. Um, And then Seed School Online came in 2014. And I think Toby Hemingway's uh, course that we did with him, which is still available, um, happened in 2014 as well.
0: And so, you know, and so you worked with Toby, uh, obviously in the, in person. And, uh, do you know, do you know Larry Santoyo?
1: Oh, of course. One of my, uh, (laughs) one of my much admired teachers. He, uh, um, you know, I love his, I love his, Greg, go out and do, do epic shit in the world conversation, you know? Yeah. Have you, have you heard him talk? about that it's like you know what things happen in the world because you say so so get out there and do epic shit is what he says uh
0: huh okay. yeah. yeah yeah larry's uh larry's a good friend and colleague and we've we've been he's been doing uh at a distance teaching you know zoom zoom uh lecturing to our permaculture classes the last
1: oh very good last couple
0: times and he and i I had the Good fortune to work with him personally and with Toby years back here at a, a um, yoga ashram that was hosting both of them back when they co-taught a PDC. They were here at the Shivananda Yoga Ashram, and they had me guest teach, and then you know, and then they they have this nice barter system where I would go guest teach for them, and so then they would come guest teach for me, and that was it. And we nice. just just do that with each other and we're still and larry and i are still doing that yeah yeah good yeah yeah i love
1: love the work that larry does
0: and certainly greg i would love to include you also in some of our uh online sessions so let's let's continue that conversation uh, because let's do it because we want to make these classes really something that have uh you know the best of the best in them people who have real life experience right and 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 I, I really appreciate your focus again on this teaching to what I call the private sector in that sense, meaning um, you're teaching to you're you're not working at a college, per se. It's not that I necessarily think you're uh, not aligning with them, but you're clearly doing your educational programming freelance, which to me, as somebody who's also been doing a, a fair ilk of that, there's a substantive difference because what it means is that you're challenged as an entrepreneur to present material that often, in a sense, your client or your your customer is usually somebody who's actually studying with you because they paid money to get some kind of, say, degree from a particular institution. But it's not so much about what the material is that you can personally say you have to offer. Whereas when you're doing it freelance like this, you really have to compel your customer to want to study with you by virtue of simply your ability to be articulate and self-manifesting as far as here's, you know, it's challenging. And and so I wanna appreciate that and acknowledge that because I think there's too few people who carve uh, carve out a career for themselves in the, you know, in the um, freelance enterprise sector as an educator, doing uh-huh. nature-based, doing gardening-based education.
1: Wow! Thanks.
0: Yeah, there's a real need uh, for it.
1: When I, I yeah, uh, oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, I'm sure That's... you're seeing that, right?
1: <laughs> oh my god! Especially last year. Yeah. You know, our uh, our interactivities with people in COVID quadrupled four times last year. Yeah. And which was huge. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, I started, mm-hmm. I started my first business at the age of 15. It was 1975, 1976, and I started my first business. And I used to clean service and build fish ponds and build aquaculture ponds when I was a teenager for people so that people could grow food, fish in their backyard.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great.
1: And yeah. And, um, around that same time, I also owned some gift wrap centers in the malls. Um, and so I, and then I, in 1984, I jumped into technology and I was in technology for about 20 years. Uh huh. Um, and then, but never got away from permaculture and, uh, gardening and that kind of stuff. and, Um, and then was able to jump back into gardening education full-time in about Uh 2004-2005. And then it took me until about 2015 to be able to stop working elsewhere to do this full-time.
2: So
1: I have an entrepreneurial background. That's kind of what I'm supposed to be doing on the planet, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So the... uh the educational programming, then you're looking to go back to live classes when things get to be better as far as the concerns around the spreading of different, you know, of what's going on with the COVID right now. But as as circumstances change, which they are bound to, you're looking forward to going back to live classes. Was that what I was hearing?
1: Um, for the PDC, yes.
0: Yep. So you like but, you like the the online fits well you think as a way to introduce people to ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That makes uh, a lot of you sense. so you can
1: do some extensive learning. Yep. Uh, uh, online. Absolutely. You can get full degrees online. You can I, I still learn tons by studying online. I'm a lifelong learner. Yeah. But for me a permaculture design course is a community building exercise.
2: Mhm.
1: And you know, I, doing the web of community on the first weekend, I'm hard pressed to even figure out how one would do that online.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, um, I, I'm a, you know, I can teach anything online, except I'm not. I, I'm not to a place where I want to do a PDC online. I'm just, uh, yeah, I don't see
2: that happening. Yeah.
1: But, and what happened last year? With COVID and us, you know, shuffling everything, because we were doing about 50-50 local trainings, you know, locally and then 50% online. And mm-hmm. we basically shoved everything online last year. In fact, we did a uh, over 60 days last March, April and May and June over, I guess it was, you yeah. Over 90 days we did 60 free classes
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and um, you know that really put us in the mode of of, uh, getting things online and it it might be hard to start rebuilding the infrastructure because you know when you start a business there's a lot of infrastructure building that needs to get done yeah You know, and so a lot of that kind of, for the local classes, kind of went by the wayside last year. So it'll be interesting.
2: Right, right.
1: You know, in 2022, um, because it'll it'll be spring of 2022 when we start looking at live classes in person again. Yeah. And, you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see what it looks like then.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm finding, you know, with the change of circumstances and, and continuing to have things evolve and finding new connections that, you know, there's all kinds of different programming opportunities now that we're looking at up here that hadn't really shown themselves before. There's this really great environmental center that I just went to today that some of our graduates um, are some of the management people helped start it. It's called the Ashokan Environmental Center, and it's uh, right right down from the release for one of the big reservoirs for New York City, the Ashokan Reservoir, and it's this really well-known nice environmental education center, and I realized a great place for us to do a bunch more programming.
1: Nice.
0: So. You know, we just can't help ourselves, right? Yeah, you keep finding different opportunities, you know, for sure. Yeah, there's programming to to deliver, there's education to deliver,
1: it's like I wish, most days, I wish there were three of me to be able to go out and together everything that needs to be put together.
0: Yeah. I can definitely relate to that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, what do you see as some of your next projects that you're excited about or that you're working on uh, with with your work there in Phoenix? What are some things (laughs) that are up and coming or hot topics for you?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that happened last year was we started, you know, you've heard of summits, you know, there's yep. summits on you know, food revolution summits. There's, you know, there's all kinds of summits out there. And so we, uh, and you mentioned earlier in our, in our interview that, um, it's a process to get people paying attention to what we're doing so that they'll actually support us.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And so yep. one of the things that we do is, um, is we do these summits. So we did our edible backyard summit last month. Uh, we've got a water harvesting summit coming up in June of this year. Mm-hmm. And what we're finding is, is that's a great way to get people engaged because they can watch the summit for free, and then if they want to uh, buy the bonus package, and you know, and support our work or. You know, seventy nine, ninety nine dollars, whatever you know, the price of the summit is. Right. um, That that supports them in learning a new topic, new topics around permaculture, water harvesting, edible backyard stuff, Mm -hmm. backyard livestock. You know, all that stuff. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
1: And then it supports us in the work we're doing. And so that's that's one of the big things that we've really pushed this in the past year. Yeah. The pandemic is how can we. How can we put free content up and get people interested so that they're engaging and, you know, maybe supporting us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and learning a lot in the, you know, in the process? Um, we do have a, uh, a program that we're working on called the Urban Farm Garden Corps,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which is a uh, garden community building project. Um, and we'll see how that develops over the course of the next three or four months.
0: And oh, cool! Uh, so that would be putting in community gardens in Phoenix.
1: No, this is more a community garden, uh, a garden building process in your neighborhood. Oh,
0: okay, it's, gotcha. So
1: commu- community gardens are great,
0: right? But you're talking about like a consortium of home gardeners per se, or
1: exactly,
0: yeah. Exactly. Putting
1: together a an online system of interactivity and education where, mm-hmm.
2: you know, people can get together with a few of their neighbors and, first of all, learn,
1: um, and then go help each other build garden, you know, build, yeah. raise bed gardens. Or, yeah,
0: that's a great like, idea. Yeah, so. And when um, you've done.
1: Again,
0: the, go ahead. Well, I was just getting a quick aside. When you've done your PDCs there, do you do them? In a twelve day format?
1: No, four weekends.
0: Four weekends. So you do get a lot of locals in them. Then that way, because I find that's a that's a fundamental difference between the twelve day and a weekend format. You know the correct the weekend you get locals. The twelve day, it's a lot of people who come from somewhere else and a few locals.
1: Right. Well, and the thing of the thing about PDCs in Phoenix is we're you know we're four point eight million people in Phoenix. Yeah. That's plenty of people to pull from. Yeah. We usually, when we do a PDC, we usually have a waiting list.
0: Yeah. How often so, were you doing them, on um, average, would you say?
1: Yeah, once a year.
0: Once a year, yeah.
1: Recently, when we when we first really got into offering them, Don Titmus, who is a good friend of mine here in Phoenix, Don Titmus and I, we were doing them, let's see, in 2005 through 2009, we did one in the spring and one in the fall.
0: Yeah. That's usually how we've been doing them in uh, New York City. We've been doing a a kind of late winter, early spring, and then a uh, late fall offering, and not in, only in the summer where we're we doing more of a residential format one. Yeah. Well, and it's cool
1: that
0: uh, there's a the demand for it, you know? Yeah. Well, it's like you said. You have to drive it. It doesn't just come. <laughs> we, we definitely do have to... Have to do a fair amount of marketing, advertising, and free events and the like. Right. So, have you? I wanted to ask you: Do you find yourself wanting to or having opportunities to partner with uh, with nonprofits in Phoenix or people who have five hundred one status?
1: Um, we work with Arizona Sustainability Alliance, which is a five hundred one c
2: three.
1: You can may surmise um, I started my first business when I was fifteen, and i 've had thirty something business i 'm an entrepreneur yeah and yeah. I've had thirty something businesses over the years, some of them lasted a sneeze mm-hmm. Others, and i've had <laughs> two of them that were uh, that have lasted well over twenty years each and um, one of the things that I started was a non profit here in Phoenix a few uh, a few years ago, well, 15 years ago, called the Phoenix Permaculture Guild.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
1: And um, I am too much of an entrepreneur to be able to actually do that. So I started the Phoenix Permaculture Guild and turned it over to the board. And unfortunately, um, within about three years, they had... uh, Stop doing permaculture as a nonprofit, which was baffling to me. So, um, I yeah have a ten- yeah. I have a tendency, given my entrepreneurial background yeah I have a tendency to um, stay entrepreneurial
0: yeah I, I totally understand that, and I was also kind of meaning to to clarify a little bit more the nuance of what I was getting at um, the potential. I wonder if you found. Benef- mutual beneficial relationships with pre-existing 501c3s that are in phoenix like say are there are there uh food advocacy groups are there people that you know or 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 perhaps state agencies or government agencies that like what you're doing that are uh
1: that, oh that
0: you're finding good synergy with oh yeah i
1: yeah. started uh, so uh, a few years ago i was in san diego with a friend of mine and he took me to their uh, food um, advocacy group in San Diego,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I said, "Wow, we need to see this." I'm an entrepreneur. I like to go out and get stuff done. When you start working with government agencies and sometimes nonprofits, it takes so much energy to get this stuff done.
2: Yeah, yeah. And
1: so uh, that's the entrepreneurial coming out in me. Entrepreneur coming out in me. So I, uh, I saw this happen with. Uh, what was going on in San Diego with the San Diego Food Coalition? Yeah, and so we I, I put together a coalition here in Phoenix, and we hired and put together uh, a proposal, which was funded by one of the local nonprofits. Thank you very much. That's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we mm-hmm. hired a company to um, come in and coach us through for eighteen months on our Maricopa County Food Coalition. Hmm. So we have, we have an organization here in town called the Maricopa County Food Coalition. Um, uh, I work with the city of Phoenix uh, a little bit, and the city of Tempe some. That's one of our—the uh, uh, city of Tempe is like a next-door city. Yeah. You know, a city right next door to us. Gotcha. And um, like I said, I, I work quite a bit with the Arizona Sustainability Alliance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and
0: what what are they? Are they a, a nonprofit or a state or yeah. government? They're a nonprofit. Yes,
1: they are a nonprofit.
0: Gotcha. And, uh, and are, are they a young or a middle aged organization?
1: Uh, I, I'm going to say young to getting to middle age.
0: Yeah. And are you seeing out there a lot of things that are being framed as climate resilience initiatives? You have much of that coming in through any state or other monies? They're trying. Yeah.
1: They're trying, but, uh, you know, I, I honestly think that most of that stuff is 10 years behind where it needs to be. Yeah. At least. I read an article oh, yeah. today. I read an article today um, that was like, that that's what I was talking about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And this, this article was, I think it was in an Watch, and um, they were talking about how our recycling system is broken in this country. You know that, right?
2: Right, yeah. Yeah.
1: And yeah. I used to give a talk here in Phoenix,
2: and yeah.
1: it used to freak people out. I used to give a talk here in Phoenix called Why We Need to Stop Recycling.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> it's great. And this was in this was in right. mid off So fifteen years ago I was giving this talk.
1: In fact, I got hired to speak to a um our local chamber of commerce. They wanted to give me they wanted me to give a keynote speech. Yeah. Um and that's what I pitched them. I said, I want to talk about why we need to stop recycling and they wouldn't let me do it.
0: Uh huh. Right. It was too too anti P C yeah. for <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know the the same problems that we're dealing with now are the same problems with recycling that we had back then. You know, there's there's no, you know, people aren't there's no place to put
0: stuff. At the stuff. At which um where do you mean at which point in the process if you want to if you want to enlighten us a little bit about some of your thinking on that.
1: Yeah, so um there's no basically there's no market for what is being recycled, mm-hmm. and I knew this. I knew this fifteen years ago. Uh, a buddy of a buddy of mine wrote a book. I'll have to think if I can come up with the name of it. Um, and in research, in his research doing it, mm-hmm. um, he found that there were big warehouses in L.A. that were collecting plastic. Yeah. And putting it on boats and sending it to China.
2: Yeah.
1: And China was burning it for fuel. Uh huh. And you know that just that just set me back. It was like, well, hold on, your timeout. What is yeah. going on? Yeah. And um, you know, so that there, there's basically there's what we have developed is a conversation of, of systems that. Um, Recycle this stuff. It gets people. You know, it's it's a conversation where reduce, reuse, and recycle. Recycle is last, but the only thing anybody ever does to be green is recycle. That's right. So you know, they're not thinking reduce and reuse first. Yep. And um, you know that puts a that puts a hitch in the giddy up right there. Mm-hmm. Um.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Number one, and then uh, you know, and then from there uh, they have all of this stuff that is being recycled, Um, you know, as good people out there, you know, we've got our recycle bins, and I do it too, you know, I I got a recycle bin, and it gets halfway pulled every week and gets hauled off to the city, but then collecting this stuff, and they don't have anything to do with it. In fact, several of our sub-cities of Phoenix the Phoenix metropolitan area have stopped their recycling programs
2: because they don't have any place to sell the stuff that they're collecting. Right. Yeah. So yeah.
1: It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's a, uh, if I spend too much time thinking about the trouble we're in, I get inactive.
2: Right. It's just like, yeah.
1: why bother? Yeah. Why bother? And, mm. Um, we well, have to bother, you know, I have said this a couple of times, I'm 60 years old, I'm not doing this for me because, you know, I think mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. next 15 or 20 years, mm-hmm. we're going to be okay. Although there's this whole concept of exponential breakdown.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah.
1: Right? right. The more things break down, the more things break down, the more things break down and it grows exponentially. Right. We're starting to see that now.
2: Yes. You
1: know, we're starting to see that exponential breakdown now. Yeah. And yep. So who knows what's going to happen in the next 20 years? But I'm doing this for my niece and nephew and yeah. for your kids,
2: mm-hmm.
0: people
1: that are listening out there, because mm-hmm. somebody's mm-hmm. got to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it says Gary Snyder would call it. It's the real work, you know. There's there's real work. There's, or I've had some people who've described it as the Dharma work, the healing, right? Healing work. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yes. Permaculture is a healing paradigm. I think, in a sense, it doesn't make sense. I've often tried one to distill it to saying, you know, um, I I was invited to give a lecture when occupy wall street was at zuccotti park at deutsche bank and i was i was characterizing us i was like who are who are we we're the people who care that's who we are right we're the people yeah. who care you know it's like if you care it matters it matters what's going on with the earth it matters that we garden more and spend more time outside with each other doing things that are celebrating life you know right. it's uh it's a powerful calling, and difficult to sometimes hear it when we're in the midst of so much industrial clamor. You know? Yeah.
1: Big time. I love that. I love your terms, man. Industrial <laughs> clamor.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's just so much noise and dross. and Yeah. For me, that was part of my drive to go in. I, what I call my permaculture Ph.D. project was a homestead that I built off the grid in West Virginia specifically to apply a lot of the things that Peter Bain and Chuck Marsh, my teachers who started Earth Haven, they talked a lot about natural building. But a lot of it for me was about getting away from all the background noise of the northeastern corridor.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's just so much noise pollution. You often don't even realize it till you're, you know, until you're actually away from it.
2: Right?
0: I mean, a place like Phoenix, yeah. I think you're fortunate in the desert, it, you can get away from all that background noise and not too much distance. But here in the northeastern oh. corridor, it's surprisingly, uh, you really have to go quite far to really get away from all the all the background noise. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's not I, true. I don't know. Maybe I'm presupposing about what it's like out there.
1: Yeah, a little bit. There's just- Yeah. <laughs> Because, like I said earlier, we're, you know, we're in the midst of 2 point,
2: no, 4.4 4 million people. Right.
1: In the Phoenix metropolitan area, in Maricopa County, in our county, 4.4 4 million people. And then, you know, from a... You can get away from the audible noise yeah. to a certain extent, but getting away from the... Um, the non-audible, the energetic noise is hard.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: So, have you found on another note here? Have you found that the city are they interested like we see happening in other cities around the country with um, you know Seattle and Detroit, and we've got some interest now in more uh, urban forest gardens that are that are a park where the it's actually like a town park have you been coming across you know people there that are interested in working with you in that way
1: um interested yes yeah motivated not so much
0: is there a is there would you say that uh context to it perhaps is there a a lot of uh available space for that kind of thing, or is it a very space-limited city in terms of uh, where something like that could happen?
1: Oh, there's plenty of space.
0: Plenty of space, okay.
1: Oh, yeah, there's plenty of space. And, so it's um,
0: more a political will kind of thing? A
1: yeah, political and uh, uh, social-financial will, yeah. Right, there's
0: right, who would do it? Project. Yeah. There's
1: this great project turning 10 acres of a uh, city park Mm-hmm. into a uh into a food forest with a restaurant connected to it mm-hmm. and uh, an acquaintance of mine has been working on it for five or six years, and they're no closer really to getting it done than they were five or six years ago when they started because there's so many blocks there's yeah there's just it's
0: what are yeah. so, are are those blocks? To not to get into the weeds on it, but are those blocks things like zoning and code, or the town board, or what's what's the main obstruction for them for that project?
1: It, it, yeah, so for a project like theirs, um, there is some zoning considerations, and they I think they've worked through some of them, um, but then it's financial. Uh huh. You know they they need to go raise I don't know a lot of money. I don't know the exact amount to make something like this happen, and yeah, um, you know, there's just not enough. There's just not enough financial support for them to get it done. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, who knows? Who knows if it'll ever happen? But uh, plus, you know, this is the Wild West, and people are very independent out here. Um, yeah. And. and you know that that makes it. I, I think. Now, I've never done projects in another city uh, or another community because I've been here for 53 years. But I think that that functionally makes it harder to get things done because we're so. Um, Do I want to use the word disparate? Not connected. Uh huh. You know, if people yeah. come out here from the East Coast, and there's a there's a block wall between each house. Right, yeah. And it's like, what's going on there? And, you know, my my neighbors across the street are delightful neighbors, but they got a garage. They drive home, they drive into their garage, they shut the garage, and I never see them unless I'm out standing out front when they're pulling out. Right. And so, that you know, there's there's very much that kind of community structure Mm -hmm. here Mm -hmm. that I think gets in the way of it.
0: Yeah. And are there are there uh, what are some of the water supply? Are there people who have some good ideas about how to deal with this drought that you mentioned that you're in? What are what are some of the strategies that the groups you're working with or yourself? What are you What are you thinking about for these issues that Phoenix is dealing with? Well,
1: the big thing is just build healthy soil because if you build healthy soil, it's going to hold water well. Yeah, and that's that's the big piece of what I. Um, What I push. Mm -hmm. One of the things, so one of the things that I discovered a long time ago about myself, and I kind of inferred this a little while ago, and that is that I do my best work from the bottom up. Yeah. So I I do community work. Mm -hmm. I work with neighbors. um, I work with um, small community groups Mm -hmm. to work from the ground up rather than trying to fix or figure out the city of phoenix or the city of tempe or infrastructures from the top down yeah it takes so much energy that i just don't have to do a top-down model on this stuff so i don't you know i don't spend a lot of time working with other entities and other other nonprofits and city cities and mm-hmm governmental organizations Mm -hmm. because quite honestly I can get done a lot more a lot more quickly if I just do it. A perfect example is Phoenix doesn't have a seed bank. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And 11 years ago I was having a conversation with uh, Bill McDormand. I was doing the uh, seed school week-long training in Tucson and we talked about Phoenix not having a seed bank and so you know, I went out and I just bought a seed bank. And what that means is I bought a lot of seeds and put them in a freezer, and okay, now all of a sudden we have a seed bank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know,
2: yeah. from a Some
1: things are just that simple. cultural perspective, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And it didn't work because, you know, if there's a problem, Greg having a 1,000 pounds of seeds in a freezer doesn't solve it. Right. So, Bill McDormand, Bell Starr, and I were having a conversation one day, and in about 15 minutes, we developed something that we call the Great American Seed Up. It's a it's a seed bazaar that we were up till last year. We were putting it on once a year, where mm-hmm. people could come in and do a bulk buy of very inexpensive seeds. Seeds are. A major ninety percent of the cost of seeds is in the packaging and shipping.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that so makes what sense. we did is we put together monster, monster seed
0: portions that they could come in and scoop themselves. Oh, great. And great. sold
1: it at a drastically
0: reduced price. So they right. could come in
1: and get a, um, you know, get a teaspoon of basil, which is, by the way, about I think it's about four grams you're buying a packet of basil at, at the store, you're getting about a, a tenth of a gram uh-huh. for 3 yeah. to $4. Yeah. And you're getting four grams in your scoop for $0.75. Cents. Mm-hmm. You just have to package it yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great.
1: Right? And so yeah. You know, that worked really well until the pandemic hit. Oh, here's back to my, my main point. Bill and Bell and I created that project in 20 minutes. And we took we took four months to launch it. Yeah, we went from an idea to actually delivering seeds to people in a massive seed bazaar in four months. Mm-hmm. That's how quickly we get. I like to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happened last year is COVID hit, and we can't do a you know an event with eight hundred people scooping seeds literally. Our 2019 seed-up had 880 people that came in and scooped seeds. It was epic. Yeah, that's great. It was massively epic. And um, so we had to look at it again. And one of the things that we've been wanting to do is do a seed-up
2: in every community. Because what we're doing Mm -hmm. is we're educating Mm -hmm. people. So everything that I do is education first.
1: And then you can buy seeds. So we're educating yep. people on how to grow seeds, on how to save seeds, on how to store seeds, all that stuff that comes with it. Um, and then they, uh, you know, they scoop their seeds and we can't put 800 people in a room. So we created something called Seed Up in a Box so that people can actually buy their own seed up and do one in their own community. Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
1: And so our seed, our our first level of seed up in a box is 160 bucks, and it, you get 250 large portions
2: of 25 different varieties of seeds in that bundle. Mm-hmm.
1: So basically what we're doing is we're giving people the ability to up-level their seed economy in their area, because without a local seed economy without local seeds, you can't have local food. That's a problem.
0: Yeah, that's very true.
1: So back to your original question, and that is me working with, um, you know, governmental agencies and nonprofits and that kind of stuff. I kind of shy. I'm not opposed to it, but I kind of shy away because I know I can get this stuff done faster.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's great. From an entrepreneurial perspective. Not necessarily
1: better, although I think the stuff that we're doing is pretty great. And I'm not saying that the top-down model isn't doable. We've got to have people doing the top-down model, working from government agencies, local zoning, that kind of stuff. We've got to have people to do that. And thank God for the people that are out there doing it. I just don't have Mm -hmm. the energy to do it. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
1: Mm -hmm. not something that I do well, so I stay away from it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's important to know where your inspiration is, where your Uh enthusiasm and energy is, and work with that, build on that. Don't overstretch or overextend because that can be a, you know, a mistake to make to just theoretically think that something is where you should go. If you've tested the waters and it's not where the inspiration is, it's important to stay with what's, what's inspiring you. Yeah. And I I would, yeah. And also, I I was curious where, where are the seeds coming from for what your packages are right now? Are you partnering Uh. with a particular supplier
1: well, we actually buy directly from the farmers, so the bonus here uh-huh. is that Bill McDormand, who I've, I've mentioned his name several times, has been in the seed business for 40 years.
2: Oh, okay. Um, yeah, he's he's somewhat of a hero in the seed
1: business. So he he has uh, basically farm level people that we buy from, and we're only buying non-GMO, of course, right? Pollinated seeds with yeah. the intent. I mean, ultimately, we'd like to put ourselves out of business with the intent that people start growing and saving and sharing seeds locally. But we don't have, in Phoenix, in most urban areas, you don't have a sustainable or, take it further, a regenerative supply of
2: seeds. Right, right.
1: Until until you somebody takes on that project and makes it happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Greg... It's been great talking with you. I really appreciate all the work you're doing out there and hearing about these initiatives that you've been making over the years to bring more autonomy and food security and really bringing plants to people and helping the community out there in Phoenix to be able to be their own gardeners, their own growers and bringing about that grassroots Growth that we're so needing throughout the country to really yeah. have some improved quality of life and an improved sense of health and well-being by providing more of what we're really needing right close at hand, and you know, realizing that food is first, food is <laughs> you know, food is primary to culture and to health and well-being. Yeah,
1: the, uh, I often say this: the most important thing we can be doing right our food comes from and how to
0: grow our own. Yeah, absolutely. And anything else you'd like to say to our listeners, and we can sign off here and let you get back to your day out there in the sun. Is there any, um, any points you'd like to share or sites or anything you want to you want tell us here at our closing?
1: Yeah, I have a quote that I wrote about 20- over 20 years ago, 1996, whenever that was, 06-16, that was 25 years ago, my God. Um, and it goes like this. And I wrote it to make people think. It's, it's, it's a potent one to make people think. And that's our downfall as a species, is that we're arrogant enough to think we can control Mother Nature and stupid enough to think it's our job.
0: excellent excellent really appreciate it so thanks for having me yeah and so it's Greg Peterson Urban Farm and I look forward to our future conversations love to have you back on the podcast and I'm definitely going to be in touch about some of our upcoming courses and find some ways for us to collaborate looking looking forward to it a couple things
1: urbanfarm.org is our website um And uh, healthy, if if you want some information about growing healthy soil, healthysoilhacked.com is one of my uh, webpages and it has. You can go there and sign up for a bunch of uh, um, videos on how to build healthy soil.
0: That's great. Thank you, Greg. So urbanfarm.org, and uh, we'll have our listeners be following up with your information out there. Cool. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Be well.
1: Don't go away yet, though. I want to talk to you.
0: All right,
2: we'll talk.